This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is preparing for a special episode of the Zoomer TV tonight, a tribute to Queen Elizabeth II, which you can watch at 9 p.m. on our sister station, Vision TV. It is a long goodbye over these 10 days of mourning in Britain for the Queen, ahead of her state funeral a week from today, Monday, September 19th. It is a time of reflection on Queen Elizabeth 70 years of service. It is also a time to become acquainted with the new king, King Charles III. All three of our regular Zoomer Squad members are either off today or, in the case of Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, working on a deadline related to the Queen's passing. So let me welcome, just for today, our Zoomer Squad, David Coletto, CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data, Conservative strategist David Tarrant, Vice President of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise, and Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. Thank you all for filling in today. Sure. Happy to be here. So let's start by asking each of you, uh, what do you all make of the tradition and ceremonies that most of us have not experienced, with the exception of those who are old enough to remember when King George died in 1952? David Coletto. Well, uh, yeah, I was not even close to being born back in 1952. My parents uh, weren't either, frankly. Um, and, you know, I find it interesting. I think it's there's a lot of history uh, behind the, the ceremonies and the process. Um, frankly, it feels somewhat arcane to me. And, and you know, even having uh, the new king have to, you know, pledge to defend the Protestant faith. Um, it was interesting being let in and seeing um, that, that ascension uh, process behind what has historically been behind closed doors. Um, I think was it was a great for the public to be, to, to be uh, included. But I do think that... Um, I think there's a lot of people watching who are wondering why we have to go through all of this and, and what, you know, the purpose is and whether there's opportunities to modernize some of, uh, you know, the, uh, the ceremonies behind what is a, an important institution, but one also that is, I think, for many Canadians and I, I assume other subjects of the Commonwealth, um, one that they don't quite understand why we still have. No, and I appreciate your honesty and your perspective as a millennial, uh, David Coletto, and uh, it's not unlike what my children are feeling, uh, you know, grown adults in their late 20s, feeling very similarly to the way you're feeling. Um, I'm going to take your question and put it to Anthony Wilson-Smith at Historica Canada. Why all this pomp and circumstance over 10 days? Well, I'll tell you what it reminds me of is an important political distinction between Britain and Canada, among others, and the U.S., which is that in the U.S., all of the pomp and circumstance and ceremony and everything else are concentrated in the office of the person who's elected, the president. Whereas in Canada, or of course with the Queen, you know, or now the King in the U.K., we split that off. So it's possible, therefore, and, you know, I prefer the way we do it because it's possible here, for example, to argue with, and as I'm sure, as I hear Mr. Poyev has this morning, you know, to say some harsh words about the political leader of the country without sounding as though you're dumping on the whole country. We see all the time in the U.S. that people who criticize the president are accused of being disloyal to the entire country. We don't do that. Mm. Uh, And in terms of modernizing, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, Anthony, that it has been 70 plus years since we as a nation, the Commonwealth, Britain, has seen an event, a funeral event of this magnitude. Well, I think there's a pretty clear sense, and I, you know, David's kind of alluding to it, that uh, we're seeing, you know, something we will not see again, that there won't be anybody else with a singular impact on so many countries, including, for that matter, probably the, you know, the one of her birth. Um, it's, you know, the other question is, and I'll, we'll have more time to get on well now, but, you know, if you don't have a queen or you don't have the monarchy, 
what do you have? So if you elect a president and a Republican instead, then you're electing someone. And then you get back to the same issue before. I remember talking about this to a governor general years ago. And, you know, if not this, then what? That's the big question to mm. come next. David Tarrant, uh, what are your thoughts on all that is going on over these 10 days of mourning? Well, you know, Jane, I think there's a fundamental uh, tension we see in, in uh, our society and in other countries uh, about the, kind of the role of tradition and traditional institutions versus uh, a sense that, you know, um, we should we should turn the page on those traditions because we have it all figured out with the kind of social values we have right now. And in one 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 sense of the word, Queen Elizabeth, uh, you know, values that she represented, constancy, service, a certain resoluteness. I think a lot of people feel it's almost sadly that 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 they are largely values of a bygone age, and maybe something that that we wish more people kind of embodied in today's society. Um, and, and you know, and so the whole notion of 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 that tradition, and, and and I take David's point fully. Some people don't see themselves in in the in these traditions, um, but there's a real value in in looking at um, the things that 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 that, uh, that that Queen Elizabeth II that she represented, that the monarchy represented, and what do you replace it with? Do you replace it with a sense that we have it all figured out, and the, and the social values and the political values that we have right now today? have it all figured out and therefore those you know those the, the inherited wisdom and institutions and traditions of previous generations should be discarded if they're inconvenient to our current social mores or is there a way to actually grow and change while still respect kind of this wonderful inheritance we have. I'm enjoying this conversation. And if you're out there listening and you have some thoughts about all that is going on over these 10 days between Queen Elizabeth's passing this last Thursday and her funeral, which is a week from today, I'd like to hear from you. How are you experiencing it yourself uh, in terms of reflecting on the Queen's legacy, what the Queen means to you, what all of these ceremonies mean to you? The numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. It's our revised Zoomer squad for this week, David Coletto, David Tarrant, and Anthony Wilson-Smith. David Coletto, back to you. And speaking professionally as a, a data collector, as a person who understands surveys and the way people think, but also from your perspective as a millennial, uh, wh- why do you want to see or why are you thinking a lot of people in the country might want this kind of tradition to change? Well, I think it starts, you know, with the basic premise of what a monarchy is, and that is you by birth are you know, um, given something, um, for those who are given it, it's often more of a, a burden than it is something that you, you, you cherish. And, and we know there's a history of that with the British monarch and, and others, but nonetheless, the idea that you're born into this family and you're the firstborn and therefore, you know, you, 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 you ascend to this position that frankly doesn't give you real power, but nonetheless, um, you represent a certain power. I think, uh, just doesn't, you know, jive with many people's values and not to say everybody, right? When we asked the question uh, a few years ago in Canada, do you think, you know, Canada should continue to have a monarchy, monarch as its head of state, or you think we shouldn't? Canadians aren't, you know, there's no consensus on this. To Back to David, uh, David's point about, you know, how, what do we replace it with? We don't even agree in Canada that we should. Uh, 36% think we should keep it back in, again, two years ago. And 45% say we should get rid of it. And those that, that want to keep the monarchy often have a lot more emotional stake in keeping it than those who want to see it go. And so, you know, this is not uh, at all um, a debate. Now, that being said, this was asked at a time when Queen Elizabeth was still our head of state, when there wasn't a sense. We knew eventually she was um, not going to be our head of state, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't clear as it is now that we know that she's no longer um, in that role. I think... You know, I think it comes down to also, um, you know, Canada's become far more diverse. Um, and, you know, there, there are many people who live now uh, in Canada, either because they're immigrants or they're second, third generation, who either have a deeply conflictual relationship with the British monarch. Think of anyone from Southeast Asia, for example, or someone 
who doesn't have any history at all, wondering why, you know, we still are connected to, to this institution, um, I think is, is reflective of, of Canada. And then the last point I make is, you know, from what I see in terms of public opinion, and, and not to underscore it, there's, there's a large portion of our country, and in particular in Quebec, who see no value in having a connection with the British monarch and having, you know, Canada's head of state um, uh, tied to it. And, and so that historic, you know, divide remains. It's clear in the public opinion data, right? Queen Elizabeth was deeply revered, respected, overwhelmingly had positive views across the country. But when you look at Quebec versus the rest of Canada, it's not that Quebecers dislike the Queen um, or even dislike now, you know, uh, King, uh, King Charles. It's that they're just indifferent to mm-hmm. it. And they just don't feel a connection in the same way that folks in Alberta or Ontario or Atlantic Canada feel towards the monarch. Yeah, I understand that. Let's go to Danny in Lindsay. Danny, thank you for calling in. What would you like to add? Well, First, first of all, I've been fortunate enough to be in uh, London uh, during the opening of Parliament, and I saw the spectacular uh, display of uh, what was going on. So I can really visually see what is happening now uh, in my mind and, and the way it's being covered on TV. But the reason I actually called was, uh, is it time for Canada to have a real conversation about keeping the monarch uh, as our head of our, our country? Uh, would it relieve some of the pressures uh, with Quebec and the rest of Canada if that wasn't there? Like, we, we know that uh, there is a, a, a large battle and so on over the country, uh, many countries tried to get Canada, and we were able to, the British were the ones who won. But when it's all said and done, today we have a country that is almost is quite divided. And is the monarch being the representative of our, the head of our country, is that part of what's being divided. All right. Dividing us. Great question. Thank you for calling in, Danny. I will put that to our panelists. Anthony Wilson-Smith, is it time to have a conversation to uh, begin the end of our relationship with the monarchy? Well, I mean, two things. I think, first of all, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, I can't, I think we, we all three of it, all of us would be familiar with how many people we've talked to over the years who said, ah, I don't know what I think about the monarchy, but I sure do respect the queen. Mm-hmm. So that equation changes. The only thing I'd say otherwise is, you know, I'm frankly, with respect to your caller, I'm not sure it's been that big a deal for many years now, even for Quebecers. I was actually in Montreal on Friday at the time of the passing. And if you look at Premier Legault, who's not exactly the first, you know, the first one to raise a Canadian flag in every circumstance. He's more of a kind of a nominal federalist. He, you know, he paid his tribute. He ordered the flag put at half-mast despite criticism from some nationalists. Even then, it was a very low-key thing. There's a lot of other issues, I think, that come up before that. And again, there's a whole, what I raised earlier, you know, if you're not going to have a monarch, fine, but what are you going to have instead? And, you know, and that's got to be thought through before a change happens. David Tarrant, your thoughts on that question? Well, listen, it's a great question, uh, and but any time people talk about change, you got to compare what we have to what the alternative is. And I and, and I suppose mm-hmm. we could tie ourselves into theoretical, philosophical knots. Be clear, if the Queen got a head of state, the alternative is a politician as the head of state. And Anthony made this point earlier. And uh, knowing what we do, and you talk, talk politics on the show, uh, about in terms of what will that help or hurt divisions? Well, I mean, I'd put it to you and your listeners, Jim. You know, would Canada be more or less divided right now if Justin Trudeau was our head of state instead of the Queen? Right? With the Queen right now, it's 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 a, it's a, large, it's, it's a symbolic role uh, that's that's it's inspiring and motivating for many many people. Shrug. Some people are are annoyed by it, but uh, if you put a partisan politician in in that office uh, with the expectation that will reduce divisions, uh, I think that is uh, you know a little bit of dreaming a technicolor. Let's go back to the phones. Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Jane for Libby and this week's Zoomer Squad, David Coletto, David Tarrant, and Anthony Wilson-Smith, along with Maureen in North York. Hi, Maureen. You're on the air. 
Oh, hello. I, I watched the service this morning, uh, the thanks, service of Thanksgiving at St. Giles. Yes. And it was so moving. And one of the most moving parts also was before when the coffin was going down the Royal Mile, which I have walked, uh, the silence of the crowd was so incredible. The respect uh, for uh, Queen Elizabeth, our former Queen Elizabeth, and, you know, she was a voice, such a steadying influence on our world through all the tumultuous events. And one of the things I'm going to miss is her speech at Christmas. <laughs> always watched that. You know, a family thing. We always watched it. And what happens in the future, I think St. Charles will step up. I think he will do a good job. And I think the problems in that we have in our nature, nation, I don't know if removing the monarch will really solve them. I said, but those are things in days to come. But today, that service at St. Giles was so personal. And I think the Queen up in heaven would have been very pleased with it. I said, it was so personal. And I think this service is going to mean way more to me than the state funeral that is coming up. Because right. they talked about her as a friend and neighbor and how she helped the community and had been at that church. It, mm-hmm. it was really, really touching to see. Maureen, that was beautifully stated. Thank you so much for calling in. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> David Coletto, um, you know, you can't deny, and I was also watching in the background at that Thanksgiving service this morning, and just the, just the artistic merit, uh, and the culture behind all that, uh, you know, it belongs to the history of Britain and by association, the history of Canada. It would be very difficult, I think, for us to sever that. I agree. I think. You know, there is a there is a a deep attachment. Many of our institutions in Canada are, are you know, pomp and circumstance. You know, when Parliament opens, we've got the mace and the you know the all those all those imports from um, our, our our long connection to to the UK and Britain um, are part of our history and our process. So I, I think it it is a I mean, as, as, as a solemn a time this is, it's also, I think, an opportunity for the UK and for the Commonwealth to, you know, to celebrate in a way its history mm-hmm. and um, its its role in the world. And the Queen, you know, the stat just been flying around over and over. Reminder: forty five percent of Canada's history, she was our Queen, and and so it's hard for anybody living in Canada today to to imagine a world in which we don't see her on our coins and we don't see her, you know, um, image or we're not, if you're a, a public official, you know, swearing an oath to Queen Elizabeth. It, it's a significant shift, but I agree that the cultural side of um, all of this is, is is part of what I think brings people in. It's interesting. It's it's an opening up of a world that we don't see very often. Right. And, and I think that's why there's always been a fascination with monarchy, whether it's the relationships within the family, whether it's, you know, their, their homes and, 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 and castles and palaces, it's, it's sort of an opportunity for the ordinary to experience just even a bit the extraordinary. Um, and, and I think that's why there's just so much interest in, in anything that happens with, with this family, whether or not you are a subject of, you know, Queen Elizabeth or now King Charles. Before we switch topics and talk about Pierre Polyev's landslide victory uh, of the Conservative Party leadership, I just want to go around the table and ask you about your early impressions of King Charles III, Anthony Wilson-Smith. Well, what a tough act to follow. Eh? I mean, uh, you know, nobody could have done the job better than, you know, than his mom. And of course, he's following his mother at a point where he's obviously grieving himself as well. So at a time of Deep emotional distress, despite 73 years of preparation, you know, uh, he's, uh, he's stepping into, he's certainly handled himself away, you know, well early, as we would expect. I think that the British public, and I guess Canadians for that matter, are more disposed to favorably accept Camilla than would have been the case some time ago. So, you know, in many ways, the best thing he's done so far is be uneventful and also to acknowledge his personal loss, because that's what people want to hear, like your previous caller, you know. She was a person on top of everything else before everything else. David Tarrant. You know, I say um, it, it, 
uh, I've been impressed so far how he stepped into the role, and obviously it's early days, it's less than a week. Um, you know, prior to this past week, how, what's Charles' role in our consciousness? Well, I think it's kind of the sad and tragic tale of, of his marriage to, to the late Princess Diana. And, you know, and he has some very passionate and personal, occasionally eccentric interests that as kind of the, uh, as the Prince of Wales, he was able to kind of pursue in the Queen's shadow. And I, I think in, in both cases, he's clearly been prepared for this, that now he's more than what he was. He actually needs to be uh, a, a more of a, of a unifying figure, less of a idiosyncratic figure, and, and understand there's a certain solemnness to the role that he is to fill. And I, I say this is watching his walkabout, watching his first statement. Um, it's clear he understands the, the gravity of the change and, and, and that he's been prepared to kind of uh, accept a very different public role than what he's had in the past. David Coletto, I think he's been impressive so far. I agree. I think, you know, the word I, I comes to mind is just reassuring. Um, and I think at a time when so much in the world is changing, there's, there's anxiety about coming out of a pandemic and war in Europe and, and the UK in particular going through a very challenging, as is Canadians, cost of living and inflation and all those things. To have somebody, I think, in these first few days seemingly, you know, reassure the public that this is a change they can count on. And I think, you know, him being in the spotlight and him being the successor for so long means that such a big change won't be such a shock uh, to so many people because Although we, we, we aren't as deeply affectionate for, 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 for King Charles as we were his mother, I, he's still someone we kind of know, and that's a reassuring thing. And that's, frankly, the virtue of monarchy, is that, is that the stability and that reassurance and the continued continuity of that family is something that we can kind of count on. We knew who was going to replace her, and now he has, and I think that, that helps. So yeah, the, yeah, there is comfort in the grieving, Right. 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 All right, let's switch topics. Pierre Poiliev and his landslide victory over Jean Charest and, and the others on Saturday. We'll start with the declared conservative in the group, David Tarrant. How significant is his landslide victory as the next conservative leader? Oh, it's certainly significant in putting to rest um, any notions uh, that I think were, quite frankly, always either mistakenly or fraudulently put forward over the past several months that he was a divisive candidate. Uh, Pierre Polyev uh, was endorsed by the vast majority of the Conservative Party's caucus. Uh, he has he received a full throat endorsement of, of one of the you know one of the great the greatest living conservative statesmen in the country, Stephen Harper. And then he's won uh, a supermajority, almost seventy percent of support of the party. There's nothing this is not a takeover, it's not a division. Pierre Polyev is who conservatives in Canada are and, and the kind of leader they want to see. Um, a lot of the people who are kind of saying about, oh, you know, this was, she's outside the mainstream and so on and so forth, quite frankly, came from people whose political interests are in seeing the Conservative Party fail. Uh, you may not like the kind of the, the issues he puts forward or how he conducts himself, but he very much is uh, 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 a, a mainstream figure in, in Canadian politics. And he's one who wants to, quite frankly, be a, to, to disrupt certain institutions that haven't been disrupted in a long time. But, uh, but any notion that, uh, that he's out of step with opinion in this country, um, is, is, is clearly false. Not, that, that does not mean, I mean, you have David can talk to the public opinion better than I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean he's a guarantee to win the next election. But certainly what it means that he is representative of a significant mainstream constituency in this country. Let me go over to David Coletto then uh, and ask you this in tandem with the question there from the other David. Are the 418,000 people whose ballots were counted representative of Conservatives across Canada? I think as Conservatives, absolutely. I mean, we've been tracking uh, throughout this leadership race how those who voted Conservative or would vote Conservative felt about the candidates and who their choices were. And, you know, it, it aligned pretty closely. Overwhelmingly, Mr. Polyev was the favorite, was the most popular, um, had the broadest kind of coalition among conservative supporters than any of the other candidates by far. And in fact, I think, you know, maybe conservative members were, I'd like to say, a, a more distilled version of a conservative voter. But nonetheless, I think 
you know, this was reflected um, in the result that we saw over the weekend. And, and I think, you know, I was going back to past conservative leadership races at the federal level, and this is the most convincing victory that any candidate has had that I can find. You know, Pierre Pauly have got more votes as a percentage, both if you use points or in terms of raw votes than Stephen Harper did when he won in 2004 when the, when the two parties came together to form the Conservative Party. So I agree with David. There is no doubt that, you know, the party seems to be united around Mr. Polyev. He's, he's tapped into the zeitgeist of conservatives right now. The big question is, you know, are, are, is, 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 is the five or six percent of Canadians that the conservatives need to convince to vote for them now, can he bring them can he bring them into the fold? But he certainly, um, this is you know, a remarkable, remarkably convincing victory uh, for for Mr. Polyev in in um, in winning this over the weekend. Okay, thank you to whoever let the dog out or in there. <laughs> uh, and Anthony Wilson Smith, uh, your thoughts on Pierre Polyev's historic victory? Yeah, quickly. So first of all, both days it was my dog, and he was actually not protesting both of you. It was if somebody had the nerve to bring the mail up to our doorstep. <laughs> yes, so, of course. Nothing to be. <laughs> Look, as a nonpartisan, yeah, pretty active observer. Here's three things I think everybody on every side should like about Mr. Poyev's win. One is. Look, he's really smart. Nobody can doubt that, you know, and, and having a smart leader, you should presume they all are, but that's, you know, that's a benefit for everybody. And he knows how the government works inside and out from the opposition and within. The second is, you know, he's achieved the big goal of everybody. He's involving other Canadians who have not voted in many cases in years, have often given up on the process, and he's bringing them in and, make, you know, and making them care. And that, again, should be to the benefit of everybody. You know, if democracy is really democracy. Everybody's involved in it. And the third thing is, you got to go back to Brian Mulroney to find somebody who's at ease, as at ease in French, and therefore a serious consideration in Quebec as Mr. Polyev. I mean, he's going to make some noise. He actually ended up taking an enormous number of votes away from mm-hmm. Josh Charest, a favorite home, apparently favorite home Quebec candidate, and that speaks to it too. So it's going to get very interesting. But there's a lot of positive trends in there, even for people who aren't that thrilled about him winning. And we will talk more about Pierre Poliev and the future of the Conservative Party tomorrow with our Recovering Politicians panel. Uh, but for now, I thank you all th- three so much for filling in for our regular Zoomer squad. You were all great, very entertaining right. and informative. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. David Coletto, CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data, conservative strategist David Tarrant, vice president, national strategic communications at Enterprise, and Anthony Wilson-Smith, president and CEO of Historica Canada. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up in the second half, if you're 70 and older, you are now eligible to book an appointment for the new Omicron bivalent COVID vaccine. We will discuss the finer points next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Well, we received a notice from the province after 8 o'clock this morning that as of 8 this morning, bookings were available for the new Omicron bivalent shot for people described as Ontario's most vulnerable. These are residents of long-term care homes, people 70 and over, health care workers, Indigenous people and their household members 18 and over, all immunocompromised people 12 and over, and those who are pregnant. We've also learned that everyone 18 and over may book a new bivalent shot as of Monday, September 26th which is two weeks from today. Joining us to discuss these significant changes in the COVID vaccine rollout, Dr. Barry Pecos, Medical Officer of Health for York Region, and epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, Professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. Doctors, hello. Hello, Jane. Hello. Dr. Sly, let's first talk about this new vaccine and how it's different from the original COVID vaccine. Well, it contains components from the original uh, virus we all experienced uh, about two years ago. Almost difficult to say that now. Together with some components from the uh, Omicron family, the particular components here are taken from the BA1 group, which caused that horrible spike back, if you remember, in the winter of mm-hmm. this year. Uh, but it's still very, certainly very relevant to the Omicron stuff we have at the moment. 
Uh, Dr. Sly, do you think in your professional opinion we should have waited for the bivalent vaccine that targets BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants? No, I'm sure Dr. Vegas has got some really good inside information on this, but from my information, it's it's appropriate to bring this out now. The protection is going to be uh, excellent. And uh, yes, of course, as it, as the new, new variants and the subvariants come out, so vaccines will try and catch up after a period of time. But that's no sense in waiting until the very uh, best one comes out because you're going to miss those opportunities for being protected in, in the intervening period. Okay, Dr. Pecos, uh, are you in agreement with that? Is this the right bivalent vaccine for us to be receiving? Yeah, I would definitely agree with Dr. Sly that right now it's it's what's available and it's the thing we should be getting. And there there isn't terrific evidence or there, there isn't going to be until after the fact, really, about which one might be very slightly better, the, the you know one for the BA4 or 5 that might come out in the future versus the BA1 Moderna. Uh, and Moderna actually historically was marginally better, even though many people in Ontario were a little bit hesitant about it. Um, so I would definitely say, you know, for anyone considering it, I, I would not wait. We're, you know, the main reason we're getting that bivalent out right now is to prevent the, you know, morbidity, mortality, people having to go to hospital or, or potentially worse in the fall. And so, you know, for that purpose now or the next couple of weeks uh, is, is going to be the time you want to get it, not whatever may come in the future. Okay. Now, there was no fanfare with this announcement. That is a first uh, for the entire COVID vaccine rollout in Ontario. We found out that people were eligible after they were actually eligible. Do you know why this was the case, Dr. Pecos? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of fanfare in the in the vaccine community. Certainly, um, you know, the, the, it, you know, there hasn't been a uh, a big press conference, and you know, we we have certainly um, been preparing for this for quite some time. You know, obviously, it's unfortunate that the announcement came, you know, a, a few hours after or a little bit after the eligibility started. Um, but you know, I, I think it's not. Uh, we, we don't need to focus too much on that. Okay. I, I think the main thing really is the difference between this and previous vaccine rollouts is, you know, we are getting this early, uh, early enough to prevent a, a surge. And, and really, you know, the history of COVID until this point, you know, we've really been trying to vaccinate people with the first, second, and then third, and then, and then fourth dose, um, you know, while we're in the middle of, of quite serious waves. And so now we have this opportunity to vaccinate, you know, preventively, really, before the wave comes. So, you know, whether that announcement was a couple of hours earlier or later or even, you know, a week earlier or later, you know, the focus now is getting that vaccine into folks over the next couple of weeks prior to what we're expecting to happen, you know, likely in the late fall. And how impressive is this, Dr. Sly, that uh, we have access to the bivalent vaccine in September? Originally, the, it was think- the thinking was maybe it wouldn't be until November or December. Well, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's a real positive uh, uh, feature. Don't forget, uh, COVID has not gone away at all. I was looking at the figures just this week, and right now in the hospital with COVID, we have approximately four times the number of people that we had in hospital with COVID uh, this week last year. Four times more. Wow. Uh, and that's, that's a concern. Uh, the wastewater signal is still high, but it is thankfully going down a little bit. And that's, that's a leading indicator. That will show us something more than hospitalization. But this thing has not gone away. So anything we can do to prepare for the oncoming fall figures, and we can predict you can bet your money on it that there will be a surge this fall, but whether it'll be a, a speed bump kind of surge or whether it'll be a, another um, horrendous surge, we really can't tell at the moment. This is, so all the protection we can get and all the encouragement that people can have to make the decisions to protect themselves, such as uh, effective vaccines, is, is what we need. Dr. Pegas, uh, back over to you. Now, we know who's eligible over the course of these next two weeks. What is the criteria? So what is the optimal length of time between a third or fourth booster of the original vaccine and the new bivalent vaccine? So um, the, the, the uh, provincial announcement and, and the NACI recommendation cited six months between doses, but, but also a minimum interval of three months. In other words, you know, for those people, particularly those who are most vulnerable and, and many of those who are most enthusiastic about protecting themselves. So the people who would have gotten their fourth dose 
you know, in the in the spring and and summer, early summer, um, you know, those people can get their this bivalent vaccine at three months, and I include myself in in that group. Mm-hmm. Um, but ideally, you know, that from a from the science perspective, you have reasonable protection, you know, up to six months. But particularly in this group that is a you know that that is eligible right now for the next couple of weeks before everyone else is eligible, many of them got the fourth dose within the ma- within the past six months. So for those people, I wouldn't hesitate to go out and, and use that three month minimum. Um, you know that that's you know isn't isn't in the in the um, the uh, the information that was was posted immediately there, but that's certainly something I, I think is important for people. And in particular, you know, from a public health perspective, it's people in those long term care facilities. And in York Region, you know, we've already been planning, and we've got you know I, I believe it's nineteen. Uh, team clinic, booked clinic teams to go out to long-term care facilities and long-term care facilities are, are going to be providing that dose to their, you know, to their residents. And some are going to be at the six month mark and some will be, you know, just between three and six months. And definitely those folks who are very vulnerable should get that dose, uh, you know, as soon as they're minimally eligible. Okay. Dr. Pegg is not to get into the weeds, but when you say six months, is that 24 weeks? When you say three months, is that 12 weeks or is it an, or is it actually six months and three months? Well, yeah, so I believe, I'm not sure the six months to the day, but, you know, there, there is, whenever we've said three months, for example, you know, you want to have three months post, uh, uh, post COVID, uh, confirmed COVID, uh, uh, infection, for example. And I believe the number there is 90 days. But often when we talk about vaccines in three months, we've talked about a minimum of 84 days. But, you know, I, I don't think we should be that persnickety about okay. that. And, and I do know sometimes when people do appear to, to vaccine clinics, you know, you know, there is that distinction one day here and one day there. I, I do hope that we move away from that somewhat. But, you know, as soon as we move away from that, then the, then the line moves and it is becomes much more challenging. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say three and six months right now, and okay. I can certainly get back to you with those details. Okay. Dr. Barry Pecos is with us, Medical Officer of Health for York Region, Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, Professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. If you have a question for either of them, phone lines are always open at 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's sneak a call in before we have to take a quick break. Daryl in Toronto, I may have asked your question. <laughs> you just answered it. Thank you very much. Okay. And I'm just curious, Daryl, will you, what will the time you plan to wait between your last shot and the well, new I one? I got my fourth one. I think it was back on April 8th. Uh-huh. So uh, I guess as soon as it's available, I will go for it. Okay. Well, I, if you're under 70, you can book your shot on September 26th, two weeks from today. Okay. Thank All you right. very much. Thank Be you well. for calling in, Daryl. All right. Let's take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, more of your phone calls for Dr. Pegas and Dr. Sly. We are in a transition. We are into a new COVID vaccine rollout. It is the bivalent Omicron targeted vaccine. Are you planning to get it? And when? 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back tomorrow. You will want to watch her tonight on Vision TV, our sister station at nine o'clock. Libby Snymer, along with Marissa Lennox, are hosting a special episode of the Zoomer TV, a tribute to Queen Elizabeth II. That's tonight at nine on Vision TV. And then Libby will be back here tomorrow with the Recovering Politicians panel. I'm speaking with Dr. Barry Pecos, Medical Officer of Health for York Region and Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, Professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. We have a bank of callers who want to get in on the conversation and ask you both questions as well. But And, and you may have mentioned this, Dr. Pecos, the length of time uh, between your last booster of the original vaccine and uh, no, sorry. If you've had COVID, that's what I wanted to ask you about. If you had COVID in recent months, how long do you have to wait to get this new shot? So the um, the, the the evidence certainly shows that if you had COVID, you know you're well protected, and in fact, when you get boosted by the vaccine, it's best to do that at three months. So that is what the evidence uh, says, and that that is what the guidance 
uh, the new guidance in Ontario suggests with getting this bivalent vaccine. The trick, of course, or the challenge really is that many people, you know, may have got a sniffle, uh, may have tested even and tested negative, or may, many people didn't test at all. And the question is, you know, if you think you may have COVID, had COVID or actually quite convinced you had the common cold, but are not sure, do you wait for the bivalent vaccine? And the answer to that that I would give is it kind of depends who you are. What I would not want is someone who is above 70 or, or has, you know, immunocompromising conditions, who, who had a bit of a cold, didn't bother testing, thinks it's COVID. I wouldn't want that person to wait. So strictly speaking, you know, one should wait uh, 90 days after having had COVID. But, you know, for those who are, you know, truly unsure, and particularly those who are vulnerable, you know, it, it would be reasonable to have that bivalent dose with, you know, three months, to, you know, or more after your previous dose, if you're unsure if you had COVID. That's my, that's my personal opinion, a bit of variance, um, you know, with, with the official guidance there, but certainly not, you know, uh, against it. It's just a little bit of a caveat. And Dr. Sly, before we go to our callers, uh, in, in your opinion, how important is it to get this new vaccine at the earliest opportunity? Well, yeah, following the uh, advice of uh, NASI and uh, and your local medical office of health, the health units are a source of excellent information in this entire pandemic since the beginning. They really deserve to be recognized for that. So the kind of advice you're getting doctor, this morning from Dr. Pecos, uh, yes, there's nothing black and white about this entire pandemic from the beginning. The sort of shades of gray between, steering between two, two alternative rocks, you know, taking the best course. And so that kind of advice you just had is, is the way we should be going. All right, let's go to Jim in Pickering. And by the way, numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Jim in Pickering, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi, and good afternoon to everybody. I called at about 1230 to see if I could book uh, for a uh, my booster, an ex-vaccine. I'll be 76 on uh, October 10th. I had my last booster, the number four uh, shot, on uh, April 22nd. Apparently, it's 168 days. So that would be October 2nd. So they said I should call back at the end of September. Uh So I'm wondering now, listening to your program today, they're developing another vaccine, maybe better. And the other question I'd like to ask, should we go ahead and get a flu shot, a regular high-dose flu shot for seniors or whatever. I'm getting confused on all this. No, no, it's okay, Dr. Pegas. There's a lot going on, right? The flu shot is coming. Uh, we haven't heard when we'll be uh, eligible to get that. But uh, what do you make of Jim's uh, research that he found out this morning? So, you know, it, it's always hard to to, uh, to interpret what people get told at various times. Certainly in, in York region, we have a, a separate booking system than the province. Um, so I, I, I don't often interact with the provincial system. Uh, my guess is that what they were telling you was wait the full six months right. until your next dose. And I don't think that's unreasonable right. And because, you know, at this point, we're not experiencing a very significant surge. Now, as, as Dr. Sly mentioned, and I want to reemphasize what he said, right now, you know, COVID is virtually non-existent in the, in the you know, in your, in your normal, you know, day-to-day life. But if you are working in a hospital, you most certainly recognize the impact of COVID right now. And we all as a society have a responsibility to get these numbers further down. And we, and, and that's what makes me worried going forward is that the community transmission level did not go as far down after this most recent peak as it does often in the summer. And, and our hospitalizations didn't go as far down. So, you know, we're in a real crisis situation still in the hospital sector. And we want to avoid that going forward. So in order to avoid that, you know, if it's today versus in three weeks from now, for most people, I don't think it's going to make a big difference when you have your high-veiled appointment. The, you know, the, the fall surge we're expecting is likely going to be, you know, quite a bit after that, you know, maybe late October, November. Of course, I have no crystal ball, but that's what we're, right. that's what we're thinking. And Dr. Sly, no issue getting the flu vaccine uh, in relation to when you've had uh, booster or the new bivalent, right? They're separate. They're apples and oranges. That's a clinical question. Dr. Beck is the best to answer that. But I will say that there has just been a paper published, a small group, including Dr. Fauci as, as a co-author, which has suggested that uh, uh, recent inf- infection 
with the uh, uh, with the virus can actually interfere with how successful the vaccination that subsequent to that occurs. Now, we need to look a little more closely at that. But at the moment, let's go with what Dr. Baker just said. Which is the three months, right? Three months, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go to Barbara in Peterborough. Barbara, go ahead. Hi. Um, my experience when I went online this morning after I heard your announcement was a little different from the last caller. Um, online, I could find nothing about the bivalent, and when I, well, I could make an appointment, but it would be whatever was available. So I thought, well, I'll call. Mm-hmm. And I called, and I'm quite sure that the person that answered the phone had no idea that the bivalent was available <laughs> or that appointments were. Okay. And he clearly said to me he would make me an appointment, but whatever, whatever vaccine was available when I got there, that's the one I would have to take. Oh, what do you make um, so, of? Uh, yes, what do you make of that, Doctor Pecos? So it is my understanding, and I'm, I'm uh, and I, that's been communicated out, and, and it, I appreciate that it takes a little bit of time to communicate that out. That that anyone who's booking an appointment or getting an appointment now, even previously booked one, will be getting the bivalent vaccine, um, and unless they you know ch- choose not to, um, and not the the previous iteration of the vaccine. So that's certainly what we're doing in our York Region Clinic. There are a couple of people who might be an exception to that, but anybody 18 plus will be getting the the um, the bivalent uh, booster if they're booking now or even if they had previous previously booked, except for people who are having their primary series. In other words, it's for some right. odd, unusual reason you did not get your first or second dose. Now you would you would get the uh, the original vaccine and then you'd be boosted with the bivalent sometime in the future. Ah, okay, that's good to know as well. Okay, Barbara, does that help? It certainly does, because now I'll go back online and I will make my point. Okay, sounds good. And, yeah, and thank by you very the, much. Yeah, you're welcome. By the way, the uh, the website is Ontario.ca slash COVID-19, Ontario.ca slash COVID-19, and you will be prompted. Or you can call one 933 Let's go to Corrine in Scarborough. Corrine, you're on Zoomer Radio. Oh, uh, good afternoon, Libby. Yes, my question was, and I think I may have had similar answers just recently, but I had my last dose of the uh, COVID vaccine May 1 of this year. Mm -hmm. Now, should I wait six months or four months for this new one? Okay, I'm going to put that over to the doctors. Corrine, it's Jane, by the way. Libby is back tomorrow. It's nice to chat with you. Thanks, Jane. Uh, Dr. Pecos, what about that? So, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, with with this particular rollout, we have a bit of a of a, of a window. And so we're not, everybody doesn't need to absolutely rush to get it, but the most vulnerable people do. So I would say, you know, that kind of depends on your, on your particular situation. If you have immunocompromising conditions, you know, certainly those in long-term care, I would recommend getting right away. You know, it may first, I haven't done that calculation in my head, how many days that is, but you know, if, if, if you want to wait uh, a couple of weeks, I think you're still going to be fine to be, you know, at that six month mark. You know, for those who say only got the fourth dose in in June, July, I would say you know you're you're going to want to probably get that dose before you know the end of October. So that that's the people mostly who would who would uh, take up on that minimum interval. But again, it depends on your your um, health and medical situation and really you know where you are. Again, congregate care settings versus um, you know out in the community. Okay, I live in the community. I live in my own home, and I am in my eighties. I had the four doses of the other, and my last was May 1, so I figured it should be the end of October. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the end of October, yeah, I would, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say to rush to get it today, but I would probably get it, you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks. Um, And and in particular, I mean, what we're doing right now, the province is doing right now is making that dose available, you know, for the, for the next two weeks for the higher priority folks, and then 18 plus everybody else, you know, after that. So, you know, the other consideration is, you know, what do we think, how, how much of a demand we think there's going to be in the general population? You know, I would hope that it's going to be terrific demand, but we're expecting that it'll be modest. So, you know, either way, I hope that you'll have access to the vaccine for any false I would get it in the next few weeks if okay. I were you. Thank you, Corrine. Thanks for calling. Let's go to Barbara in Etobicoke. You're on the air, Barbara. Thank you, Jane. I joined the segment late, so I hope this question hasn't been asked. 
I got my fourth booster the end of June, and I strategically chose that time frame because I was traveling. As the pharmacist told me, the efficacy was for approximately eight weeks. Okay. So based on what I'm hearing, I can either do this next one in four months or in six months. But what is the efficacy of this new bivalent vaccine? How long will it take us right through the winter months and therefore the flu season as well? Uh, who would like to take that? Dr. Pegas? I, I can certainly take that. And the answer is, you know, almost as with anything in COVID, we don't 100% know. And it really varies on who you are. So what we do know is, that, you know, I can't guarantee you that it's going to take us right through the winter. And in fact, that's one of the challenges and one of the reasons that, you know, I'm not, you know, going full force saying get it today. You know, waiting a couple weeks is fine, too. Getting it today is really important if you're particularly vulnerable. Is it going to last us to the end of the winter? In other words, to, you know, April or, or May or hopefully spring will, uh, will bloom by then? You know, it's not clear. But we do know that in people, particularly people who are older, um, or with immunocompromising conditions or taking certain medications, immunity wanes faster. And so for most people, otherwise healthy folks, um, you know, getting the vaccine is very important to protect themselves and other people. And we can reasonably expect that additional protection will last quite some time, you know, at least three to six months, if not quite a bit more. But in people who are older, you know, that, that is why we've been recommending and, and prioritizing those people, the fourth and, and now a fifth dose for those people, because it, it has been shown that it, it, it's great for three months. It's pretty good between three and six months, but it really does start waning after that point. Every okay. vaccine is different, and we only have the data, you know, mid-run or, or potentially at the end there. But, you know, based on what we know so far, I think that's a reasonable guess as to, you know, what to expect. Okay, Barbara, all the best to you. Uh, Dr. Sly, did you want to add to that? I know you're right up to date reading research papers and so on. What can we expect in terms of we get this bivalent shot in the fall? What comes after that? Uh, if there's anything that's been uh, characterized with this virus, it's, it's the uncertainty and the surprises that appear almost every week. Uh, if you ask that question, I think if Corinne uh, 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 asked that question, say in six months, we might have a much firmer answer as to how long it takes and how, what the waning immunity is like. But even that changes with, with people and their age group and their background uh, medical conditions. So it's very uncertain. We will certainly be talking more about this new bivalent vaccine, which is eligible as you are eligible as of today, if you are 70 and older or among some other groups of people who are considered vulnerable. So for now, Dr. Pegas, Dr. Sly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Have a great day. Dr. Barry Pecos is the Medical Officer of Health for York Region, and epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. Jane, for Libby, she is back tomorrow. Make sure you tune in to Vision TV tonight at 9. Libby and Marissa Lennox are hosting a special Zoomer TV show, a tribute to Queen Elizabeth II. The number ones at 1 are next after Bob Comsick and the News. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.